Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Michael Gibson. Michael is the co-founder and general partner of the 1517 Fund. And before that, he was the vice president for grants at the Teal Foundation and a principal at Teal Capital. His new book out this month is called Paper Belt on Fire, How Renegade Investors Sparked a Revolt Against the University. It's a terrific new book. And Michael, always uh, good to see you, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian. All right, so to start, I'm going to read a quote from your book. Um, This book is our story, you write, and on an unlikely account of how two outsiders, a charter school principal and a defrocked philosopher, are now fortunate to preside over one of the most successful early-stage funds in the business. I do not write as a disinterested outsider, but as a crazed participant gone berserk. Now, the book is an excellent read, and as Arnold Kling uh, recently described it, it's part memoir, part manifesto about education. So why don't, you know, why don't we begin just by giving, giving us uh, the journey that you chronicle in the book? What is the arc of the, yeah, the book's Yeah, that's narrative? right. Uh, so when I was first uh, approached about writing a book and sent it out to all the big publishing houses, some of the original pushback was interesting is that some of these editors were saying, why do you want to tell a story? Uh, maybe you should be presenting more like a policy argument. Um, so, you know, with the issue of higher education, I think, you know, we can all agree that the, the debt situation is out of control, $1.7 trillion in debt. The costs are high. There are concerns that people aren't getting the skills they need. Um, and I wanted to address that, but I just love storytelling. I mean, for me, I was a, all right, so the quote you read, defrocked philosopher. I think in the university system can be characterized as the secular church, maybe the atheist church of America. Uh, I, w- I dropped out of my PhD program. And one of the moments for me when I dropped out was um, I was in the basement of a bookstore and I came across an old copy of Tom Wolfe's collection, The New Journalism. And in the introduction of that book, it's just so wonderful because Wolf is talking about this aha moment that he had reading Gay Talese, his Talese's profile of Joe Lewis, and it's written like a short story. He uses all the techniques of the novel, the memoir, whatever, and he tells a story. And so, I, you know, going back all the way then, I, I thought if I ever wrote a book, I wanted to tell stories. So, you know, I it's like, who am I to, to write a book about what we did? Well, it's pretty unusual business story in my mind. Um, we, uh, Danielle Strachman, my co-founder and I, we, we run a venture capital fund, but we primarily invest in people who don't have college degrees. So we're backing the uncredentialed. That would be unusual enough. Next is that, yes, Danielle and I have no background in finance. And the fact that we have managed to uh, you know, start one of the more successful pre-seed funds, despite not having the background, despite constraining ourselves to people without credentials is pretty impressive. You know, I, I, my line is always, we, we, we've returned more money to our investors to date than the Ocean's Eleven team steals from the Bellagio and MGM Grand. And, you know, in the movie, that's $163 million. We've returned 200 to date. We have, uh, you know, companies maturing and so on. So, 
you know, we are, we are doing successful. I think that's a story. It was interesting. These publishers are like, oh, you know, we're, it's like we sent it out. Like a third of the rejections were, you work for Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel is an evil conspiracist. We can't possibly publish anything by someone who works for him. Another third was, I went to Yale University. I studied English Lit, and I think college is just terrific. And then the last were like, hey, who are you to tell a story? So um, I thought that was a wonderful, like exciting business story. And then I thought I could use that as a springboard to address things like the higher education issue. Well, you know, you, you, um, you, you describe in the book how the 1517 fund, in a sense, grew out of the, the Teal Fellowship. Um, and you, you point to the kind of underlying crisis uh, that that Teal uh, has talked about quite explicitly on a number of occasions, um, and that that really inspire both of these these projects, uh, and that is that real technological progress has stalled for decades. And you you make this point several times in the book. So can you sketch out? Because most people would say, well, look, our world is transforming constantly technologically. What what is the core of that Teal argument? about progress, technological progress, um, and how do elite universities contribute to that stagnation? Okay, great. So I think the best way to get a sense for the stagnation argument is actually qualitatively. Um, so my mom was raised by her grandmother. Um, her, you know, her mama was born in, in the 1890s, which meant when she was born, there was no radio, there was no television, there were no airplanes. Um, you know, she lived to 1980. So across that time, she saw the invention of those things, uh, movies, television. She died seeing a man on the moon. So the amount of progress, it's tough to measure the rate of progress and even what counts as progress. But like when we think of big, the electrification of America and so on, the time period from, let's say, the Civil War to 1973 is just extraordinary in terms of the rate of change. Um, we could point to uh, specific numbers like life expectancy at birth um, in 1900. That was somewhere around 45 years of age. Now, by 1980, that had reached 73. So that's quite a lot of gains since then. Okay, now we get into the stagnation piece. So since the early 70s, we've added maybe three or four years to our life expectancy. So um if you look at, you know, everything outside information technology, communications, if you look instead at, let's say, energy creation, we've had major innovations with fracking, but when it comes to, you know, really abundant sources of energy like nuclear, fusion, maybe even tapping into the heat of the earth with geothermal, we, ju we have not made progress there. With, to go back to healthcare, we have not cured cancer despite you know, 40, 50 years of embarking on a war on cancer. We're making advances, but they just seem to be little incremental steps. You know, Every new drug that comes out seems less like a magic bullet and more like a cloud of concerns about side effects and efficacy. So the gains just seem to be coming slower. Transportation, we seem to be moving slower than we used to. The Concorde was retired uh, in the early 2000s. Um, education. So despite spending at the higher education level four times more per student in real terms, no one would say the education is four times better than it was in the 70s. And then K through 12, I mean, that's even worse probably. We spend more and more, more than we ever have in history. And I don't think the results, I think we can all agree they're not great. I 
you know, one stat I point to is just literacy. Something like 23% of all adult Californians are functionally illiterate. So the, adva- the advances in these other areas are coming slowly. Um, what I think is true is that people don't consider those technologies because when they think of technologies, they think of smartphones. But the ancient Greek term techne meant craft, a way of doing things, shipbuilding, governing. And so just the way we do things has not improved in those major industries. Uh, so Teal makes that argument. Um, you know, the book you mentioned, yes, it's part memoir, uh, but part manifesto. The manifesto does address college, but I think the larger question is these deeper issues and problems that I don't think we have a good handle on, which is why are some nations more creative than others? And that could be the arts. It could be science and technology. Why is the same nation less creative than it used to be in the past? And then we could look at institutions within nations why were they more productive in the past compared to now? And then individuals. And I wanted to, so the book sort of telescopes out and touches on these issues because the stagnation piece is important. And I want people to sort of wonder, you know, why is it the case that maybe America was more innovative than it used to be and what's slowing us down? Or why was a city like San Francisco? I arrived there at 2010 and it seemed like it was on the cusp, cusp of becoming Uh, the Athens of the new renaissance. And when I left in 2020, it was a dystopian nightmare and the streets were empty. So what happened there? You know, that was a major blow to American dynamism because, you know, it could be the case that in in the ideal world, we'd see, you know, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel at some cafe debating the future like drunken poets in Paris and and San Francisco. And instead they're all spread to the wind. Uh, So, yeah, I think, I think these ideas about, okay, what, how do we measure progress? Why aren't we making it? I think these are the big questions. I think the universities play a big role because they're part of the slowdown. Um, and I could keep going on and on. But well, you, I, you have an interesting quote. You say, you know, one problem uh, is that, um, you know, students, including at elite colleges, are coming out with uh, pretty, pretty heavy debt burdens. And that that encourages these graduates to take sort of safe bets with their careers. Yeah. Uh, they get, uh, you, you say, uh, they become krill for too big to fail corporate leviathans, which is a great line, and and so the idea behind the Teal Fellowship and and uh, your own fund is is maybe to find some of these people, right. and give them a different career path. That's right. One one line we like to say is that courage is in shorter supply than genius. There's a lot of really smart people out there, but they seem to be conformist and for for certain reasons. One of them could be the financial piece that you graduate having paid, you know, maybe a hundred thousand to $200,000 in tuition. Um, you need to pay that off. And a lot of people, uh, prefer to become management consultants or (laughs) investment bankers. And those are safe, well-paying jobs. Great. But maybe they're not taking the risk that they might otherwise would have to try something different. And it doesn't have to be a tech company. It could be small business. It could be, uh, becoming a novelist. Uh, but you know, the chances that you want to, you, you're going to strike out and, and become an epic poet uh, with $100,000 in debt is, is just absurd. So when we started the fellowship, there was this idea, Peter, you know, we could have picked any age, uh, but we started, there were two conditions on the Teal Fellowship. It was a $100,000 grant, um, but you had to be 19 or under when you first applied and you had to not be in school when you received the grant. That age was originally set because we thought it would be interesting to 
switch people off that path before they accumulated too much debt. You know, in the event, a lot of the people who came through the program, the debt issue wasn't as big, so the age range changed. But but I still think it's true that, um, and, and maybe it's not just the finance piece. What we realized is like, maybe it's because things are prohibited or just things aren't happening. Like you can't, like if you major in nuclear engineering, um, it's only in the recent history, in the last decade or so, where new efforts have been started. It would be foolish to try to find a job. So it's almost like a lot of the exciting careers were actually prohibited and banned. So maybe that meant you know the the paper economy was the only thing left open to a large majority of that Ivy League class. You know, it's like forty percent will go off, fifty percent goes off into those professions. Well, you um, you got a lot of pushback. Uh, about the fellowship. Uh, I think uh, Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, called it one of the worst philanthropic ideas that he'd ever <laughs> yes. heard, something like that. Yeah, um, the decade. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that was it. It's, yeah. it's, uh, but, you know, there's been some impressive projects that have grown out of both the fellowship and, and right. the funds. So maybe, uh, maybe just sketch a couple of those. Your book includes several right. of these personalities. Yeah, the, the, the most famous is probably Vitalik Buterin, who is the creator of Ethereum. We met him in, he had some contact with us in 2012, but really got to know him in 2013. In the course of, you know, looking back and researching the book, I, I discovered that we actually had lunch with Vitalik five days after he originally wrote the Ethereum white paper outlining his ideas. Um, when I first met him, I mean, he is a, he, I mean, and he still is a gaunt Russian young man. Um, he is just extraordinarily brilliant. Um, I saw him texting at one point in Chinese on his smartphone in Mandarin. And, and I asked Vitalik, I said, how did you, how did you learn Mandarin? And he says, oh, I taught myself so I could communicate with the uh, Ethereum engineers in, in the mainland of China. And I was like, okay, wow, he is a special person. Um, but yeah, we helped him. I mean, back in 2013, no one really cared about uh, blockchain besides Bitcoin. And we uh, we helped launch Ethereum in 2014 with Vitalik, you know, just providing advice and mentorship and, and stuff along those lines. And wow, that's incredible. You know, despite the fluctuations, obviously crypto is going through a lot. But as, as it stands, I think the whole sector um, is, is, is still growing. And I think Ethereum will play a pivotal role in providing the infrastructure for Web3. So, um, you know, that's probably the biggest thing. The next most recent success is, is probably Dylan Field. He's the, in 2012, we helped Dylan launch a company called Figma. It's a design tool for uh, engineers, helps them get started in, in sort of whiteboarding what products will look like, and then all the way down to specific design and UI features. And they've done extraordinarily well, especially over the last few years. And Adobe just acquired Figma for $20 billion. So extraordinary success there. We had a lot of people where, uh, you know, it's like modest success would be like they made a few million dollars. It's not a big success by the, you know, venture industry. But then, you know, some people went back to school, a handful, and others just, you know, found jobs or got acquired and they're still out there. So what we wanted to show is that, yeah, that a credential wasn't necessary to a fulfilling and rewarding career. And when we started the program in 2010, yes, Jacob Weisberg at Newsweek, eventually Larry Summers criticizing us. 
Um, but it seems like now, like now it's not such a big deal, either the program or the idea that someone might prefer to take a different path rather than getting a university degree. Yeah, I mean, things have really changed, uh, in recent years, uh, in, in the public perception of the worth of college degrees and people I think are taking, uh, taking a more, um, you know, critical look at, at university world. Um, you know, others who've got a similarly critical view, as, as you do, of the credentialist industrial complex uh, of, of the university world, they've sought to change it with different means. Um, you know, so you, you have policy initiatives looking to beef up vocational programs and mm -hmm. apprenticeships, um, you know, to, to find different paths for people to economic productivity. Uh, and then you have the proliferation of some uh, new educational institutions, the most notable probably being uh, UATX, uh, this alternative university in Austin um, that we've written about a bit at City Journal that seeks to really return to a different kind of model of higher ed by, mm -hmm. by offering a legitimate free area of intellectual discussion and debate. Uh, so how do you view those kind of projects? I'll go down the list there, starting with the last. I, I'm excited for the University of Texas at Austin because I think um, the level of polarization in the academy is just, at, at, or at, I mean, really, it's a one-party state just by any measurement. So in terms of allowing or creating a, a sanctuary or safe space for um, you know, moderate thought even, or, you know, I think that could be very valuable. Um, my one concern would be this, is that, um, you know, the, the standard story about why graduates of college earn a wage premium over, you know, people who just have a high school degree is that, you know, colleges impart skills to their students, and then those students have these skills and they're rewarded in, in the labor market. But I'm, I'm of the camp, you know, Brian Kaplan is probably the most famous in recent years where, you know, what's going on, how to understand the wage premium is, is uh, open debate. And I think there are some things that Kaplan and others have shown where actually maybe students aren't learning skills in college. In fact, they're just finding a way to signal something about the type of person they are to the labor market. So it's not just intelligence because you could give IQ tests or, and so on and try to determine that. But what you're really showing is intelligence, cognitive ability and so on, but also a number of other traits like the willingness to undertake a four-year project and com complete it, the willingness to receive assignments and complete them. And, you know, the biggest sign in this, like anecdotally, we all have forgotten what we learned in school. I can't, I took so many years of French and my French is terrible. Um, and, and so many people will have jobs that have nothing to do with what they learned in school. So the direct application of the skills, like we all have a sense where that seems a mismatch. But in the, in the economics literature, the biggest thing is this, what's called the sheepskin effect. So if we're learning skills across all four years of college, you would assume that if someone dropped out in year one, two, three, four, that you'd see a growing amount of uh, that they're the number of skills they acquire across that time would be rewarded in the labor market, but you don't see that. If someone completes senior year, that's worth three times more than the other three years combined. So that doesn't make sense on the skill story. Like the most dramatic uh, 
uh, thought experiment would be I'm on my way to my final exam. It's the last credit and I get hit by a car. I have to go to the hospital and my professor's mean and he's like, oh, you can't make up the exam. So you fail. On the skill model, I should be able to go find a job and make pretty much the same amount of money. But what we don't see in the labor market is that's the case, in fact, dramatically less. So I, for any of those new college efforts, if they're not tackling that signaling issue and, and, and not pretending that it's all skills, then I'm going to be worried about what they're doing, even if it's the University of Texas at Austin. Now, back to the first one you mentioned. I, I was just in Switzerland, and I was introduced to their apprenticeship program and it is very robust something like 70 percent of all teens are part of their apprenticeship program now those jobs range from everything from retail to manufacturing to even banking and people can spend years in that and then maybe go back and get uh, you know some degree or higher you know post-professional degree but but I was shocked at how robust their system was I don't know the details about you know how the government um, is involved with that monitoring and regulating it. But it just shocked me how robust it was compared to the United States, where, quite frankly, we denigrate the trades. It seemed that you have a dunce cap on your head if, if you want to depart from the, the higher education track and, and maybe focus on becoming a contractor or electrician. Um, and, and that really saddens me. So, you know, one thing I think we could do better as a country is, is, is you know, finding ways to expand this this idea of, apprenticeship. Um, and then, and then, you know, I get pushback on the fellowship and, and what we do as a fund that, Hey, you're talking about the NBA, the Olympics, that's not for the average American, but I think what we can do, the replacement is, is, is okay. We can get in the policy thickets of, of debt, uh, you know, tying debt to employment or holding schools accountable. But one thing I think we, we could try to do more is just help people establish their careers through some kind of network of authentication. Like if you can first get a job somewhere and then that person is willing to recommend you for other jobs, I think that would be a good place to start. I see it in the tech industry on the engineering side where there's a website called GitHub. You can post your code in this repository. Your peers all vote on it. It could be five-star code. It doesn't, you could be an avatar. People don't even know after who you are, but they will hire you because your reputation is established. So I thought, yeah, I think those things could be really exciting. And, and I wish we could move in that direction as a country and maybe state by state as well. Uh, you know, the, the book's um, longest section, it's, it's almost a book within the book, is, is the coda called The Invisible College. Uh, what's the theme of that and, and right, what's so it in the book for? What I realized was with, the, with our fund and the fellowship, it was all about getting people out to the frontier of knowledge as fast as possible in the sense of if you're 20 and, and you're already able to understand the cutting edge of something, you should work on that. Um, and then it dawned on me that a lot of our education is structured in, in, a, in a way to scaffold knowledge so that maybe you start with the simple fundamental techniques and then you build on that and, and you get to the more complex things. But but what I saw instead was like that had been perverted in a sense. So it's like, you, it's like, yes, you have to spend all this time learning Newton before you get to Einstein. And then maybe after 10 years, 12 years, you're ready to make a contribution at 32, 33. Um, but we, you won't know what's out there on the frontier until you're 22 or sorry, 30, 32. Right. So what I decided was, can I flip that on its head? I, I started researching and it's really hard. There are no books out there that tell you 
what are the top five unsolved problems in each of these fields? So when I was going through the stagnation, like, well, how do we know we're in stagnation? Okay, let's look at fusion energy. What are the top three or four unsolved issues in that? And so I thought it'd be interesting to canvas that in the hopes of inspiring people because I wanted to end on a positive note. I don't care who you are, 12, 15, if you're from um, Europe or Africa or wherever, just start working on these problems and you will find your way to the edge and you will find your way to the new economy because if you have a concern for hydro or geothermal power or you know freshwater creation, that's where the jobs of the future are going to be because it doesn't exist yet. And it was surprising to me that I couldn't find like in layman's terms, you know, like reader digest version. Okay, go through these things. So that's why I wanted to include that. I think it's kind of interesting to look at each sector like that. I could have gone on, uh, but uh, you're right. It is almost like a book in a book. Um, but my, my aim was to inspire people to say, hey, I can work on this and I don't have to scaffold these lessons. I could go right to the frontier and then I'm going to have to figure out what I need to learn after that. Uh, you, you know, that's certainly the manifesto part of the book. Um, I mentioned earlier that it's also, um, and this is coming through a bit in our conversation, part memoir. Uh, you open the book with a surprising personal story about your family history. Uh, which, you know, you had conveyed to me in, in person before. I wonder if you could just recount that uh, briefly here. Yeah, so this was my meditation on creativity, was starting at the highest level with the nation to, and then down through to the city, institution, office. I have a chapter where I describe what it's like to work in Peter Thiel's office through an anecdote. Peter is an exceptional spotter of talent. Um, he's, I, I joke, he's like the Ezra Pound of Silicon Valley because Ezra Pound worked with Elliot, Joyce, all these people. You know, Peter has worked with the greatest entrepreneurs of this last generation. Um, and when we are picking Teal Fellows and when we're making investments, a lot of our assessment is about what is the character of this team and what is the source of their creativity. And one of the like smaller theories in, my, in the book that, you know, inspired by Peter seems to be the case that, you know, creative people tend to live in a polarity. They tend, you know, in Girard's terms, uh, they tend to be insiders and outsiders at the same time. Peter has this heuristic he uses where if you have been targeted as a scapegoat by a community, René Girard, yeah. Girard has a theory about scapegoating and social dynamics and, and mob mentality. The mob chooses a certain type of person as a scapegoat. It's not just some complete outsider who happened to be there, nor is it a deep insider who is within the system necessarily. It's always someone who's both insider and outsider. Weird enough to be strange enough to cause the social issues at hand. Strange but, but not a stranger. <laughs> strange but not a stranger. And so I, I thought I wanted to share, okay, I reflected I'm pretty weird as a person. I, I grew up, I thought one person was my dad. Um, and then when I was 20, I discovered that he wasn't and, and I had a different biological father. And then learning about who that person was, um, I, he died, my biological father died when I was, uh, you know, a year and a half old. And yeah, I opened with this anecdote because it's been this mystery in the, in my life that my mom, you know, three days before he, he died, my mom t says she had a conversation with him where he said he feared for his life, that he was involved in intelligence work. And, and then three days later he was found dead in his apartment. So that was always this mystery, 
Um, it has certainly, you know, led me. I talk about how I interviewed with the CIA and, uh, you know, almost became a case officer. Um, and because all because not I wanted to become a spy, but I just wanted to know who my dad was. And, and, and you know, maybe uh, it's it's tough to connect these things. But for me, it's almost like I've just been, you know, in I am an insider and outsider. I have a weird history. And maybe that does. Uh, lend itself to my view of talent in the world. That's why I wanted I wanted to make it a personal story because I think um, I do think we need to telescope these things out. Like what makes people creative, what makes them unusual. Uh, you know, Nietzsche has this line: "What doesn't kill me makes me stronger." I'd like to amend it to "Stranger." What doesn't kill me makes me stranger. <laughs> well, that's great. It's it's um, it really is a, a fascinating um, book and uh, filled with. Uh, interesting side yeah as i said like uh you know the the wolf stuff i love his journalism and the storytelling and he talks about one of his first articles that was just like this ragtag mix of stuff and you know i he's just one of my heroes and i i guess you know these unconscious influences i'm not afraid to go on digressions or you know have a telling anecdote or something. So I hope people hold on for the ride because, you know, I think it, I, in the end, I think it all comes together and it's pretty fun. Uh, last uh, question. What are you reading these days? Anything interesting coming across your, uh, your desk? Uh, you know, I, I, I did just pick up this short story by Claire Keegan, uh, this uh, book, Foster. Um, I heard the novelist Carl over Kanausgaard speak well of her and I just picked it up, and it, it cracked my heart. It's a tender tale. I, it's it it's it's called a novella. I think it's a short story. <laughs> you know, they stuffed it in ninety pages. But I, I do recommend read people pick that up and, and give it a read. And then I just read uh, Richard Reeves' book of Boys and Men, which I think is an interesting center left take on uh, some of the educational issues involving you know boys struggling. Right. We've just published a, a big essay. Um Talks a bit about that book by uh, Kay Heimowitz on, oh, on the struggle. I uh, look forward to that. Boys, yeah, boys it, it, it is a big issue, and I thought it was good to see someone on the center left take a cut at it. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, Michael, thank you very, very much. Uh, don't forget to check out Michael Gibson's work on the City Journal website. He's written for us uh, several times. That's www.city-journal.org. Link to his author page, and of course, the book Paper Belt on Fire. Uh, which, again, is original, compellingly written. Uh, that will also be in the description. So you can find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a five-star ratings on iTunes. Michael Gibson, great to see you. Brian, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.